Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, this is Rob Moore. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Now, need to set the scene for you for this one. The man I'm about to take you on a journey with is one of the most inspirational people I've ever met. Now, I'm sure you've heard of Simon Weston, but if you haven't, because maybe you're not from the UK, you can't really get the feel listening of the power of Simon and his life's experience. So he's a Falklands War veteran and he has 46% burns and um, still a very good looking man, but serious facial disfigurement. And as you'll hear when we talk in the podcast, there's not a part of the skin on his body that hasn't been used for a graft or moved from one place to another. He was in hospital for 11 full months when a bomb was landed on him, where 47, I think, of his great friends died and another 90-odd injured. And for about five years, he was in and out of hospital and now a very successful keynote speaker. He's written very successful books. One's called Walking Tall, another one's called Going Back. He's been the subject of many documentaries and now, in fact, a documentary is just coming out, which he's hosting. And there's probably not many people in the world that you would say has dealt with some of the hardest life challenges that Simon has. Yet, had I not told you this intro, you wouldn't even know because he's probably one of the most happy, pragmatic, down-to-earth guys I think you'll ever meet. So this has been a real treat and a real privilege. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So let's get on with the interview with Falklands War veteran Simon Weston. So, Simon, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Not a problem. First time I've ever done one. Ah, well, I, I hope it's a great experience <laughs> for you. So I was thinking on the, in the car on the way here, how can I have a discussion with you where you're not talking about all the same things you talk about, you know, in, in, in your speaking business? And not because you don't enjoy that, but because I just like to be disruptive and a bit different. And one thing I think a lot of people do in their lives is they get involved in really unimportant things, little arguments online, they sweat the small stuff. The, the smallest things in life they seem to make so important or they're OCD and everything has to be perfect and they can't let go of control. And you know, knowing you and your story and seeing how successful you've become with something you know, really horrific that happened to you, have you got any thoughts on that? I hate little things going wrong. Right, right. <laughs> because Little things you can do something about. Mm. Big things, they're going to happen no matter what. You yeah. can try and ward them off, big things, but big things happen. And I never get upset at big things happening. Right. I get dismayed, I get despondent, I get upset. Yes, of course, I do, just like everybody else would, like, no matter how positive you are. Yeah. But the little things, the little things you could have done something about, yeah. they drive me insane right. because I could have stopped it if I had just concentrated a bit harder, put more preparation in, invested a bit more time. Right. And they're all avoidable. That's mm. the point. So have you got any examples? Oh, gosh. What could be an example of that going wrong? Um, putting a cup of tea on, the, on an arm of a chair <laughs> and it falls off, either on your lap, on the floor, whatever. Yeah. How much harder would it have been to have already put the cup on the floor or yeah. on the coffee table, you know, where it was meant to be safe? Yeah. You know, just stupid things, avoidable 
things yeah. like that, you know. Um, but how, how can you let something like that affect you, yet the man who was ultimately responsible for your injuries, you know, you've made peace with? But that was a big thing. It wasn't a little thing. Yeah. And ultimately, I joined the army. That's it. Mm. I made the decision to join the army. The second you do that, you put your life in somebody else's hands mm. because other people make decisions about the business you're in. Mm. So the second you accept that, see, the thing is, you just have to accept certain things of life that happen. What you don't have to accept is the outcome. Mm. The outcome is down to you. Right. I mean, I remember once I had, um, I was getting berated by somebody. I was doing something and he was a disabled guy and he was berating me because I was doing something that was supporting a project being done by the government about trying to help disabled people back into work. And this guy was ranting and screaming and I called him an imbecile. And he said to me, so you're calling me an imbecile because I'm disabled, you? I said, no, disability is an unfortunate thing in life. You're born with it, something happens to you, you contract an illness. Disability is, is unfortunate. I said, I'm not criticizing your disability, I'm criticizing you as an imbecile. I said, imbecility is a choice, disability isn't. Mm. I said, you're just an imbecile. The right. fact that you're disabled is neither here nor there. Yeah. You know, and um, so that, you, know, you, you just have to accept that some things in life go on, mm. you know, but you don't have to accept the outcome. Mm. The outcome is down to you, it is a choice. Mm. And we are successes or failures by our choices. You know, but the more investment you put into you, the more likelihood the outcome is going to be stronger, better, and more successful. Sure. From time to time, I think we all loathe in our own self-pity in a sort of masochistic kind of way. You know, misery loves company and all of that. <laughs> yeah, true. And um, Gerald Ratner's become a good friend of mine. I interviewed him on the podcast, and he said it took him years after what happened with all the media and you know, he's, he's um, getting fired from his own business. And he said in the end, his wife said, you get out and sort yourself out or we're getting a divorce. And he picked himself up and um, he's a really successful guy again. And I admire that. Did you have a period of time after your accident where, you know, you had a struggle to come to terms with it? Yeah, I mean, you don't lose yourself and then rediscover yourself straight away. Mm. Nobody does. You know, you just mentioned Gerald Ratner. I mean, for years, he was the butt of jokes. Mm. He was the point of ridicule. Mm. But it was all self-inflicted. You know, what happened to him was totally self-inflicted, but he had to get out of his own way, stop being so, feeling sorry for himself. If you want sympathy, that comes in the dictionary somewhere between shit and syphilis. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, the whole point of life is that you have to pick yourself up and dust yourself down, but you have to wallow around in the dirt for a while mm. to discover what it is that went wrong, mm. what's happening to you. The problem is if you, if you turn to substance abuse, alcohol predominantly, because it's the easiest thing to get hold of, um, if you go to alcohol, you're never going to succeed. Mm. You're never going to achieve it. And the reason being is because alcohol's a depressant. Mm. And if you're depressed already, uh, like you say, misery loves company. You're already depressed, so you're adding something else to keep you depressed. Mm. So, you know, you've, you've got to dust yourself down. And that's what happened for me. I, I, had a, I was drinking far, far too much. Was this before or after? No, 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 when, after I got injured. I mean, mm. I, I didn't drink huge amounts before I got injured. Yeah. I enjoyed myself with the guys. Of course I did. I was a typical rugby player and a bloke and an yeah. army, a soldier. But no, I was drinking way too much after I got injured. And I saw myself on film drinking out of a bottle of sherry. And I thought, dear Lord, how many more steps before I'm under the arches with that bottle of sherry? Mm. And that's all I could think. I could see myself living in a cardboard box under an arch, drinking whatever I could get my hands on. I thought, 
really? Is that what I've become? And I stopped drinking, got myself horribly fit, uh, went round the world, met lots of incredible people. And I learned that people were willing to give me a chance mm. as long as I was prepared to be decent and be sensible. People were willing to give me a fair shake of the whip and they would listen to me. And that's been the, the most, probably the, the greatest revelation is that people actually do want to listen to somebody. You know, they will sit down and will give you attention as long as you talk in sense. Mm. They don't have to agree with you 100% of the time, but they'll give you a fair shake of the whip, you know. Mm. And, and then you understand that you have a certain amount of control of your life. Mm. And that's big, one of the big parts of it, really, mm. just to be able to go out there and prove that you have relevance to you. Yeah you are important to the rest of your life. You know, in fact, you're the most important thing for the rest of your life. And other people are just a bit part players. Now, they could be a big bit part player or a little bit part, but it doesn't matter. It, it, it all contributes to who you are. Mm. And it helps you to grow. Yeah. You know, and something of me will be left with some of those people that I spoke to today. Something of me may stay with you after we finish talking on this podcast. You hope mm. that something, a little nugget, a little kernel of, of intelligence, of wisdom, of wit, stays with people, mm. of some of the things you say. And that's the same with whoever you meet, whoever you meet. You know, you were talking about people, one chap I've watched play rugby, the other chap I've, I've seen on telly um, be ridiculed. But, you know, something of those guys stays with you mm. because something that they did was profound, was, was prophetic, was was unbelievably talented, whatever yeah. it would be that stays with you. And you think, that, that was just a moment that's inspired me or it's encouraged me or it's given me the confidence to go on and do something else. Mm. Do you think part of the, the effects of your injury have made you who you are? I'm still Simon Weston, but you change. You change anyway, because I'm 55 now, so I've got older. So clearly you're going to change. I'm a father, I'm a grandfather. So you're going to change. But you can't go through having the injuries and almost losing your life. You can't go through that without it affecting you in one way or another. Before I got injured, I was a brash young man. I, was, I wasn't a, a bad person, I was a nasty person, but I was brash. And I was a bull in a Chinese shop and I loved being in the army. I loved being a soldier. There's something wonderful about it. But it, it all got taken away from me. Mm. So it's got to alter you, yeah. you know. Um, but maybe you wouldn't have been contributing to society and other people's lives as much without... That's a very fair point. Mm. That's a very fair point. And, and I agree with you. I, I probably wouldn't because I would still be going down the same trodden path that many other great people have gone down that I would have followed. Mm. So, you know, yeah, life sets us challenges all the time. And it's how we rise to those challenges, you know. Don't complain about the fact that you have challenges in your life. Be grateful, mm. because if the challenges are there, they're there to be overcome. Yeah. And success is what you make of it, mm. you know? But all these people who just sit there and complain about having challenges and people changing things on them, all you do is waste time. Mm. You just waste time. Yeah. And we none of us have that much time on this planet to be wasting it. Mm. You know, we'll um, want it all back when we're 75, won't we? Oh, wouldn't <laughs> yeah. you just? And 75 is, is going to come round and meet yeah. you far quicker than you realise. Yeah. 55 snuck up on me. Yeah. You know, so I, I'm, I'm a strong believer that get out there and live your life. Mm. Stop existing. Yeah. Too many people exist in life. Not enough people go out and live it. Mm. I have lived 
10 people's lives, if not more. Mm. I have had such a great time up to 55 and I don't intend to stop. Yeah. And I don't intend to stop. I, uh, I've, I've been out and I've just, get, as they say in the valleys, I've given the ball a real good tamp. <laughs> I've bounced it around the place and enjoyed myself. I yeah. really have. But there must have been a point. I mean, do you remember when you, I don't know, woke up or first became conscious of your injuries? Do you remember that moment? Hmm? Yeah. And how did you feel? Bad. I mean, I didn't like it at all. Are, are, you, are you underplaying it a bit there, or was it bad, or was it really, really bad? Or it was I mean, horrendous. Yeah. It was horrendous. You I mean the second you start to realise that everything that you held dear is no longer going to be the same. The second you realise that no matter how much money I could have had, or how little, didn't really make any difference at all. Mm. I was still in the same position I was in, mm. and that's where I was going to stay yeah. until my situation improved and I was able to start living my life independently. Yeah. And physically, how long did that take? I don't really know. I fully started to integrate my life back into society, probably took about five years. Wow. You know, but I, yeah. I was having surgery. I was in hospital for 11 months yeah. without, go, without being out. Mm. So um, they allowed me out for a day or two, but that was it, I was back in then. I was having surgery every week, mm. you know. And sometimes they couldn't do surgery because there was no more skin to play with. Right, yeah. Well, so taking had, it off all the other parts yeah, of the body. Yeah, so they yeah. had to wait for everything to heal before they could put it on again. Right. So uh, they were harvesting the skin two or three times from the same place. You know, um, so it, it took a long time. You know, um, when I say to people I was the worst injured to come back alive and they think of somebody that had a gunshot wound to the head or something, but they're out walking and as soon as their head heals, they're out. Yeah. They're living their lives again. I wasn't able to live my life properly because I was in and out of hospital. I couldn't get a proper job because I was in and out of hospital. Yeah. And it's the shortest time for the first five years that I was in hospital for, the shortest time was about six weeks. Wow. You know, so yeah. you start to realise just then how problematic my injuries were. Yeah. And then, looking at it the other way, was there a day, a moment you can remember where you thought, you know what, I'm back on my feet and I'm going to you know, make the most of life? Yep. It was doing something so, so simple. I was catching the train home from hospital. Because up until a point, I was always being driven to and from hospital. But then it came to a point where I could catch the train and I'd be picked up in Paddington by um, a driver from the hospital and then they'd take me around to Woolwich. But I remember once they gave me uh, two boxes of wreaths for Poppy Day. Mm. And I was in charge of them to take them home. And I had to hand them over to somebody else. And it was the first responsibility I had right. after being injured. And somebody, you know, and it, it was not great, not huge, not expensive, but the poppy means a lot to me, as it mm. does to many people. But I was given the responsibility of transferring these two boxes to somebody else. Mm. And it just made me feel useful, rather than being a patient, rather than being somebody that was an object of sympathy. Mm. You know, all of a sudden, I, I started to discover a little relevance, a little importance. And... The biggest problem that a lot of us find in life is discovering relevance. You know, if you aren't relevant to what you're doing, then why are you doing it? Mm. Go and find something that you are going to be relevant yeah. to, something you're going to be important in. Mm. You know, we cannot, you cannot give that too much importance about how important you are yeah. to something. You know, if you're not important to something, you've no relevance to something, move on. Mm. Stop flogging a dead horse. Mm. It's not going to get up and win the Grand National. <laughs> you know, but some people just keep banging the same old drum 
and then they wonder why their life has disappeared. They've worked so hard at this and it's just not been successful. Mm. If it's not going to work, it's not going to work. You know, sometimes when things are not really going as well as you think they should, go and see somebody who will give you an objective view and they'll tell you to stop flogging a dead horse. Yeah. And that's what it's all about, mm. you know. Sometimes we just need to have the wit to be stiff if we're dead. Yeah. yeah. You know, just accept it. Have the wit to be stiff if you're dead. Mm. It's, it's, it's really inspiring talking about purpose because, you know, nothing that anyone in this world has been able to throw at you has broken you. And it's from what I see on the outside, obviously not knowing you, so being respectful and judging from the outside, you know, your life has gained more and more and more meaning and you've made a difference to a lot more people. But that one thing about when you lose your purpose, that's often the biggest killer, isn't it? It is because when you're struggling and there's no one around giving you the time of day because you have no relevance to what they're doing, and it's not their fault, you know, they're desperately trying to keep whatever they've got going afloat and they haven't got time then to watch you doggy paddle. <laughs> you know, they haven't got time to watch you struggle. You know, and nobody wants to watch people struggle anyway. Mm. You mean, because it, it hurts them mm. as well. And you just end up in a spiral of negativity. You know, go and seek people who will give you honest advice. Mm. You cannot beat true honesty. And if somebody says to you, give up, because they genuinely care about you, but they say, give up and try this. They don't mean give up completely. Mm. That isn't going to work. Mm. And if you're not meant to make something work, then don't do it. You know, yeah. we can't all be Formula One drivers. Mm. We can't all be fast jet pilots. We can't all be submarine captains. We can't all be ballet dancers. So find something you're good at yeah. and give it a go. Well, you're proof that you can be really successful in more than one thing. I mean, being a soldier and then being an author of great books and on TV and being a great public speaker, there are lots of different types of things, aren't they? They are, but you've got to go and explore them to see if you are any good at them. Mm. You know, just get out there and live your life to the full. Mm. Get out there, explore what you can do. You know, who was it who said, um, if you don't think you can, you probably, or you think you can, you're probably right. I think it's Henry Ford. Henry Ford said mm. it. Okay, there you go. So, you know, the fact of the matter is, the second you, if you started to run a marathon, go, and the first thought in your head, I don't think I can do this then you probably won't. Yeah. You'll give up halfway, you know. So go and find something you can achieve at. Mm. You know, the, people keep giving Henry Ford the credit for the first production line because of the car. Mm. It wasn't. Mm. He didn't create the first produ first production line that was ever created. It was created for beer in Germany. Mm. You know, so the Americans yeah. didn't create a first well, production this line. this iPhone sitting here, Steve Jobs borrowed most of the technology from other, yeah. other businesses, didn't he? And, yeah. and that's it, you know, but so... Mimicry is the greatest flattery. Mm. If you copy something, it's because it's good. Yeah. The Japanese, they invented the samurai sword. After that, they didn't really invent an awful lot <laughs> no. else. You know? They're good at being second, aren't they? But yeah. I tell you what, they, they don't half improve the second yeah. and become the first. Mm. And why not? Yeah. Greatest flattery. You know, some of the greatest optics ever made are made by the Germans. Mm. You know, uh, but the Japanese improved on it. Yeah. You know, why not? You know, flattery is, uh, mimicry is the greatest form of flattery. You know, accept it if somebody wants to improve what you've done. Mm. You know, you cannot be top of the tree forever. Mm. It's impossible because somebody else who's far cleverer will come up with something else because they've learned from what you've taught them. Mm. So they've fast circuited in their lives 
because they've gone, oh, well, I've learned all that because that's what you did, but I can do this now. Mm. But you, you know, you're too old to think about that now. Yeah. One thing one of my friends said, we were in Tenerife, and he said, the only thing they can't copy, though, is who you are. And no one can copy who you are. No one can copy what you've been through. And I think that's what makes you, you know, you, people want to buy your books and mm. watch the TV shows and see you speak. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's incredibly flattering to, to say. I mean, there's not a lot of people who would want to copy me, though, no. you know, in the sense of what I've had to go through yeah. to get to what I am. But you've turned that into a success, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I have, but it's, um, it's a long, hard slog, you know what I mean? But nothing that's worth having is that easy, mm. you know? Um, all the great old adages that, that come to, to mind that only exist because they're right, mm. you know? Nothing worth having comes that easy. Mm. You know, unless you win the lottery, but you've got to keep buying the tickets until it's your turn. Yeah. You know, and most, and most lottery winners go bust anyway two years later. Well, they don't have the happiest time of it, no. do they? You know, um, because... Because they haven't learned to manage what they get. But they lose all their friends as well because yeah. people become very jealous. Mm. You know, success brings a certain amount of jealousy and enmity. Mm. And I've, I've experienced that as well. You know, I've lost How friends. I just move on. Mm. I mean, I don't stand and stare. I don't sit there and wave my hands in the air and get all upset. There are more than enough people in this world to, who, who want to be a part of your journey, who mm. want to see you succeed, who want you to go on to achieve, not just for you, but for others as well. And look, the, the comments I get from people who've joined me on LinkedIn and things like that are, are really uplifting, mm. really uplifting because you don't realise that you, you can play a part in somebody else's life in the way that you can. You don't realise that what you do can be seen as inspiring because you're just doing it. Yeah. You know, when you set your business up, you set your business up because you wanted to be successful, you mm. wanted to do the job right, you wanted to make money. Mm. But you didn't stop and think about all the other spin-offs that have actually spun off. Mm. That's just the evolution of your business. And it's the same for everything. If, if you're positive and determined to make things successful, those are just part of the sideshow mm. that goes with it all. And I don't mean that to sound sort of in any way detrimental to other people that are a sideshow for your life. They're not. But if you think about it, you have to concentrate on the nucleus of what you do. And then everybody else is on the periphery of that. Mm. And when they dip in and dip out of your life, that's fine. Yeah. You know, and the more positive people... I've got so many unbelievably good friends mm that are hugely successful, hugely successful at what they do. And I revel in that. I absolutely, I dive in and swim around for hours <laughs> yeah. on, on their greatness. And why not? Yeah. I enjoy people being successful. I like being around successful quite, people. Quite rare in British society, that, isn't it, would you say? British aren't very good at being successful. They don't really know how to enjoy it. Mm. You know, um, And enjoy others' success, maybe. Yeah, you I mean I love other people's I success. Do. I, do. I think it's it's refreshing. You watch somebody, you know, whether they're driving a, a Rolls Royce or flying their own jet plane or they've got a big country pile. Um, you know, why can't we look at it and say, you know, I'd like to have some of that. Yeah. That's where I'd like to be. I get quite dismayed by people who just don't like other people being successful. If they've worked hard and they've got what they've got through hard work, and taking a gamble on themselves and their own sort of cleverness. And why not? Mm. I mean, good gracious me. I, I get really I get really annoyed at people who who hate people's success. Mm. You know, I, I look at some some people in the political world who think that successful people should fund everything. That really annoys me. Yeah. 
you know, at what point do you think that you have the right to think that way? That everything that somebody successful has got should be then shared with everybody else? Mm. Disproportionately pay more into society anyway. By being there, you create jobs. By being there, you create. But why then should somebody be able to come up and say, right, well, because you've got that now, I want to take a lot more off you. Mm. You know, why should that happen? You know, yes, share. Yes, help create wealth. Yes, help go out and, and help other people. But don't spend your whole time being jealous of people. Mm. I don't get that. Do, I don't... You, do you have any thoughts as to why people are like that? No. Nah. I, I suppose it's a, sh a shortcut, isn't it? It's a shortcut to... Well, if I've got some of yours, I'm, I'm going to feel better, you know. Mm. But there's not enough money in all of those individuals to be able to cure the ills of society. Yeah. You need those people to keep working and being successful, to keep pouring money in over a longer period. Don't keep taking off of them and then all of a sudden they're struggling to do things or pay their bills or meet the, the wage bill that they've got to pay. Because you've taken so much off of them, mm. you know, the balance has to be struck and... You know, it, it's disproportionate. You know, you can't disincentivize people so, so much. Yeah. And if sometimes you disincentivize people, then you send them somewhere else because they will go. Mm. If they can do what they're doing and do it somewhere else where they aren't being penalized so much, then they will do. Yeah. You know, it's a, sim it's a simple fact of life. It's simple economics. Mm. You know, people will stop. And then what do you do then when you've no longer got contributors? I mean, I remember back in the 60s and 70s when we had a super tax. Once you'd earned over a certain amount, it was like 99p in the pound was going to a tax. So you could keep a penny. Yeah. All of a sudden, you saw Tom Jones and Shirley Bassey and yeah. all them, they all just left. Yeah, yeah. The Rolling Stones and all that, they all left to live on their islands mm. and everything else. They had lost all those millions in revenue. Ooh. And that's where people started then setting up all these tax havens and all the rest of it. Don't blackmail people because they'll just go. Yeah. You know, you can't keep pushing the same envelope around all the time. Sometimes you just have to make everything else fit. Mm. You know, it's it's and it's just simple economics. You know, if you can't afford things, then you have to change things. Mm. You know, you can't keep saying, well, this has got to be paid. How? Tell me how, please. You know, let's understand it. I'm not a hugely rich man or anything like that, but I do all right. Mm. I'm 55. I've got to keep working until I'm 70, like everybody else. Mm. You know, so my retirement might not be that long. <laughs> but, you know, I don't, I don't want to rely on somebody else's handouts. Mm. Sure. I want to make sure I've got it there for me and know what I've got. Yeah. So one thing that's really struck me about what you've done is you've reinvented yourself. It must be hard for a soldier or someone in, any kind, in, the, you know, in the forces or, you know, representing our country where... You know, for a lot of years, you're very pushed down this path and, you know, you, you do what you're told to do. And then all of a sudden you're out in the real world. Not that that's not the real world, but the world where you've got it, you're responsible. That must be a bit of a culture shock. Reinventing yourself, everybody does it. But it's to what degree you have to do it. In the speaking world, you have to make yourself relevant to the ever-changing world. And to reinvent myself over 35 years, you know, there's been a lot of changes. There's been a lot of reinventing. Is that how long you've been doing speaking for? Nearly that, yeah. Wow. I tell you what, comedians are loving it at the moment, aren't they, with all the Donald Trump stuff? I mean, I, was... I go watch comedy shows. <laughs> They've got some brilliant jokes now, good material. There are, but God alive is so lazy, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. You know, come yeah, up a with a cheap win, yeah. It is, yeah. I mean, it, it's great. Comedians at the moment, if you're in that band of select comedians, 
you don't have to work. Mm. All you do is turn up and you're on a telly show. Yeah. You're, you're hosting a game show. You're hosting this. You're doing that. Mm. Comedians are used to everything now. Yeah. You know, they've become the new rock stars. Mm. They probably did earn the right, though, didn't they? Doing all the sort of pubs with five people in and... Yeah, yeah, but you know, if you ever go and watch some of these in, in concert, they're not as good as the one-liners they have on telly. You know, mm. the only telly selects the best one-liners. Yeah, of course, yeah. So the rest of it gets put in the can, mm. you know. <laughs> it goes yeah. in the pot. So, you I mean, um, but, you know, good luck to them. Mm. So how have you reinvented yourself? How have you stayed relevant as a speaker for, you know, 35 years? Because I change, you know. There's always going to stay the same thread about my life because... I was injured and it's what propelled me into the public eye. But after that, then you've got to, you've got to realise that you've got to do different things. Mm. You know, you can't just stay doing the same thing. You know, I believe that there's a lot of people can do many different things, you know, and I've come across some incredible people. A lot of disabled people I've come across that have gone on to be successful in many different things. They're just incredible, mm. you know. They're dis disabled because it's um, just something. It's just something in their life. You know, there's a lot of people that are disabled that, you know, God love them, they, they, they need every help and support and should get it. But there's, there's others out there who've gone and said, no, I mean, I may have a disability, but I am not disabled. Mm. There's a different thought process. It's the same as me. I don't think of myself as disabled, even though I'm categorised as disabled. Mm. But I don't see that. I mean, I, I see me doing stuff, doing things, you know, why not? Well, mm. what's to stop me? Yeah. You know, the only person that can stop me, the only terminal barrier I'll ever meet in life is me. Mm. Me or the end of life. Mm. That's it. Yeah. You know, um, I lost a very good friend two weeks ago and he wasn't 60. And he had, he had leukaemia and, and he fought it really hard as best you can fight it. You know, realistically, you know, you, you, you have it. You try and stay alive for as long as possible, but ultimately... You know, it'll, it sometimes wins. And, um, and I look at him and I think, God, Pat, you, you were so valuable. You could have done so much more. But he kept pressing the one thing that he could do rather than reinventing himself in other ways. Right. You know, and I, I, I think sometimes, and it, well, it's definitely a life lost, you know, now. And you motivated by not getting to the end of your life and feeling like you didn't do everything you could. Oh, yeah, very much so. I don't know any successful person that doesn't think that way. Mm. I mean, most successful people want to leave something on this planet. Yeah. They want to leave their mark. They want to be talked about for at least a year after their death. Mm. You know, you look at some great people, you know, like Mother Teresa and people like that, Einstein, and they're talked about forever. Yeah. So they've left a huge, long-lasting legacy. Mm. You what know, would you like yours to be? He did his best. Mm. I said, really? You know, I did what I did, did my best with the limited tools I, I had. Mm. You know, um, I'm not the brightest, I'm not the sharpest, but neither am I the bluntest or the dimmest. Mm. So, you know, I'm somewhere in the middle. Do you see yourself as someone who motivates people or inspires people? I have to accept that because it gets said to me so often. You know, and if successful people say that I'm an inspiration to them, then I have to accept that, mm. that I, I inspire some. I mean, to me, that seems like one of the greatest gifts one could give to someone. Yes, you know, um, I believe motivation comes from within, inspiration comes from without. Mm. People inspire you, but you have to motivate yourself. Yeah. I've never been motivated by anybody. I've been inspired by people, 
you know, um, I'm, I'm inspired by people like Douglas Bader and, and Noel McConkie, who's virtually nobody's ever heard of, but he's a friend of mine who was blown up with a remote control device in Northern Ireland. And he lost both his legs and one arm and he learned to fly. He worked tirelessly trying to bring both sides of the divide together over there with young people, took them to America. And he is the most incredible man, mm. most incredible man. I drew so much inspiration from him. There's a, there's a guy back in my local village, a guy called Bobby Breen. He worked in the collieries and he takes youngsters running. I mean, he, he's got arthritis in his knees and his ankles, I believe, but he goes running all the time with these youngsters. He runs a running club, mm. trying to keep kids out of trouble. You know, and he's always done things for charity. He's always done things for other people. And if you're not inspired by people like that, he didn't do it for glory. He didn't do it for recognition. He did it because he wanted to make a difference. Mm. If you're not inspired by people who do those things, then perhaps you missed the point. Yeah. You know, I'm inspired by lots of people, though. You know, you see people who work unbelievably hard in war-torn areas or famine-ridden areas or in the ghettos of America. I mean, in our own... I mean, people don't like to think we've got ghettos here, but we have. You know, there are very dangerous places to go in different parts of cities now. You know, we've got it, but you see these people and you think, they're not doing it for any glory. They're not doing it because it's making them rich. They're not doing it because they're going to have great big fancy cars or great big yachts or anything like that. They're doing it because they care. Mm. And if you're not inspired by people like that, then you're maybe missing the point. Mm. And I, I'm truly inspired by so many ordinary folk that go about and just do something. Yeah. Rather than sitting there and whinging and bleating about things, you know, I get, I, I believe that people make a great difference because they just care. And I've got so many people like that in my life. I'm so very fortunate that I have people in my life that do. Mm. And do you think that helps you in your own journey? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's bound to, isn't it? Mm. You know, everything helps you. Everything helps you as long as it's positive. Mm. And some of the negative things help you as well because you know what you don't want to do. Yeah. You know where you don't want to go. You know that some people in life are just going to be what they're going to be. Mm. And I, I just, I draw strength from a lot of people. Mm. I draw strength from a heck of a lot of people and I, I have good advice from a lot of people as well. Mm. And that's the way I am with it. Mm. You know, I'm, uh, I'm quite comfortable in my own skin. Yeah. And if you've got the right type of people that want to back you up and give you good advice, then great, you know. You're, am I right in thinking you're self-employed? No, I've got companies. Right. So, uh, But I mean, as opposed to being employed. Oh, I, yeah, I employ others. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And uh, what is it you like about, you know, being your own boss, if you like, and running your own businesses? I like the flexibility. Yeah. I like, I like the flexibility in my time. Not that I have a great deal of spare time, but busy people don't. Mm. And I guess you have some a fair amount of choice in how you invest your time. And that's it. You know, yeah. Like I say, you know, the flexibility is probably the greatest thing because you can dip in and dip out of different parts of the business. Yeah. As long as you're, you're relevant to it, then mm. it, it's, it's good. But I, I, love about, I love about employing people. Mm. You know, I think there's nothing nicer than employing people. Mm. Yeah, they, they earn you money, but the fact is they're earning money for their lives mm. as well, you yeah. know. Um, and we have a security company and we do um, all manner of different things. We won't do pubs and clubs, but we do everything else. Mm. And people think, oh, security officers, oh, it's terrible. They don't blink in good money. Mm. You know, okay, it's only, it, you know, the minimum wage and something, but it's got to be the living wage now. And 
some of these guys, they work so many hours, but blooming heck, they don't have to get the rewards. Mm. You know, some of them, 35, 40,000 pound a year. Right. So that's good wages. Mm. That's good wages for being diligent, for doing a, a proper job, turning yeah. up smart, you know, being being what you're asked to be. Mm. And I love that, you know, we've, we've helped a, a young girl who's in a terrible car crash and um, she had a cleaning business and she lost it all because she lost her confidence, she became mental issues because of it and Paul and myself, my, my business partner, we helped her change her life and now she can't cope with the work she's bringing in because yeah. she's got so much going on and we work with her now, mm. you know, we, we share because we push her part of the business forward mm. and that's great, I mean, it's a wonderful dilemma to have, you know, yeah. that she's struggling to meet with all these demands for her work, mm. but why not, yeah. you know, the joy of being in business is it's not always about you. Mm. It's about what you can help others do. Yeah. And if you can help others become successful, mm. then that's wonderful. Yeah. You know, I love the smell of success. Mm. I love seeing people <laughs> successful. There's nothing nicer. If we all strive to be successful, some people just settle for mediocrity and good, good luck to them. Mm. But when you're around people who really want to be successful, it's infectious. Mm. You know, and it, it can help you become even more successful. You know, you look at all the most successful people in the world, they surround themselves with successful people and positive people and people that have great input to things. It's no great surprise then that they become successful. Yeah, yeah. One thing, um, it's interesting you say that because I probably not had a public chat about this, but I talk about it with some very close friends a lot, and that is there's probably no better feeling than seeing someone come into your company and find something that they love to do and, you know, because you're working for probably more hours in your life than you are sleeping and with your kids and your family. I mean, eight hours a day, you might sleep eight hours a day and you might, so it's like, it's like one third of your life. Yeah. And to see someone work for you and enjoy what they do and have challenge so they grow and progress and you know, move up the career ladder and buy a nice house and buy a nice car. Mm -hmm. And even, and I wouldn't have said this seven years ago, but when they leave and set up in competition or when they leave because they want to run their own business inspired by us, you know, that's, a, that's an amazing feeling. It's a hell of a compliment, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's a hell of a compliment because they've learned what to do and what not to do from mm. you. Yeah. <laughs> you know. More what not to do, probably. <laughs> but <laughs> but I mean, that, that's the great thing. I mean, it's the greatest compliment they can pay you because they, they're shortcut in their success mm. by saying, well, we've seen it didn't work there, so we're yeah. not gonna go down that path, but we'll, we'll concentrate on this bit. And we've seen best practice. We've seen what made you successful. Mm. And that's the greatest compliment. And how lovely, mm. how super is it to, to watch somebody go off and, yes, but as a rival business, that sets you then the challenge to still stay top. Yeah. And it, it should inspire you mm. to up your game. Yeah. And so actually having good challenges, you only get the best of the best if they get a good challenge, you know? Otherwise, it's like watching rugby or boxing. Mm. You never see the greatest fighters or greatest sports people doing the best they can if they're play, playing mediocre, yeah. te mediocre teams. Totally mediocrity. right. Do you remember Eubank, Ben, Watson, yeah. Yeah, and the boxing? I mean, the, without... I think, well, I've, I've listened to Eubank and Ben a lot and they've both said without the other, they wouldn't have been as good as they were. Absolutely, the greatest, the greatest round of boxers, my favorite boxer, Sugar Ray Leonard. Yeah. But if you look, there was Hagler, Hearns, yeah. all of those that were just, they were phenomenal. There, was, there must have been about eight or nine of them, maybe 10 yeah. of them. 
at that time in the middleweight division, and they were brutal. Yeah. And I, I swear to God, and they were all excellent. Yeah. You know, Colin Jones, he fought Don Kerry, and uh, Colin Jones from Swansea, and it was, his nose was split right the way across his cheeks. And he carried on fighting because yeah. he was brutally tough. Yeah. And these guys were phenomenal boxers. Mm. And as you say, though, none of them really, we would never have seen the greatness from those guys yeah. had they not had great competition. Yeah. You look at Muhammad Ali, would we have seen him as the greatest in the current crop of heavyweight boxers? Yeah. Probably not. Mm. But because he fought all those incredible Leon Spinks and all of those guys, yeah. you know, um, Foreman and people, I mean, he had to fight some of the greatest boxers of yeah. all time. Yeah. Same with the rugby, isn't it? Because like us Northern Heaven Hemisphere teams, if we want to beat the Southern Hemisphere ones, we need the competition in the Six Nations. The better the Six Nations is, the better we're going to be in the World Cup. And Without a doubt. Yeah. But the, the same goes in domestic leagues and everything else. Yeah. To be the best, and this is where soccer's got it wrong, because mm. they keep importing and shortcutting success mm. rather than building and breeding it. Yeah, and that's why, to me, football has lost all real appeal. Because, well, how many people in Tottenham side are from Tottenham? How many people <laughs> in Manchester United side are from Salford? Mm. How many people in Man City side are from Man from Manchester itself? From England. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so is there an argument though that if we have some of the good European players, it might increase the entire standard? But, or do you think because there's too many? I just think there's too many. Yeah. I just don't think we're prepared to invest enough mm. in, in our own people. I liken it to, you know, uh, I, there was a big phase on long time ago and they'd moved trouble families from one estate to where there was a really good estate and everybody was living harmoniously and doing and being as successful and it was quiet and peaceful. And they put one troubled family in there. My goodness, it dragged the whole, <laughs> the whole thing fell apart. I've got that thought, a process around who you hang around with. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, but it drags the whole standard Ooh, down because right, yeah. they import all the badness with them. Right. They don't up their game to be as good as everybody else. They drag everything down. Right, yeah. And the second you have that common denominator, you ruin everything. Mm. You know, what chance have England ever got of winning the World Cup in football again? Mm. You know, 80%... We might, have to edit, the, we might have to edit this bit out. I'm only joking. 80% <laughs> of the Premiership is foreign players. Yeah. There's only two or three domestic managers. You know, they're importing it all because they're shortcutting success. Mm. Money is ruining it because they're trying to buy success, not build it and breed it. Yeah. You know, uh, you, you have a look at companies, they have to build. They can't go out and spend money and buy it. Mm. They have to build and they have to get the right people in. And it's the same in, in the military, you have to get the right people to do the job. Mm. That's why the special forces are the special forces. They, they get the best of the best, yeah. and they work hard at building them to remain the best. Mm. And the same goes for, for business mm. as well. But Was there anything you learned in your military days that has really helped you now in your business days? Do what you say you're going to do. Do what you say you're going to do. Don't leave it to others. If it's that important, do it yourself. Because if somebody else gets it wrong, you're going to be blaming everybody else, but ultimately the fault lies with you. Because mm. if it was that important, you should have done it. Mm. You know, and don't use other people as an excuse. Mm. You know, there are other people that contribute to, to downfall. Of course there are. But how much of a part did you play? You know, I hate chaos management. I hate... And do you know what chaos management is for me is? 
when you stand there and you hold your hand out like that and you spin around a dozen times and whoever you're left pointing at, it's their fault. <laughs> you know, we love to blame people and it's become so bad. People love to look for somebody to blame. Hang on a second, look at yourself first and see what part you had to play in the whole situation before you start looking for somebody else to point the finger at. Mm. You know, the buck stops with you to start with and then you explore outside of that. Yeah. You know, the good thing one... about having that attitude is, because I, I don't know why people don't really get this as much, but if you look at yourself and what you can improve, you can change the situation. But if you blame someone else, you can't change the situation. No. Because you're putting it back onto them, but in your eyes, they failed in the first place. So surely common sense says, well, if I look at myself and what I can change, all right, I'll change it, make it better, I can improve the situation. Yeah. Is that not common sense? Well, I think so. <laughs> I think it's very commonsensical. But I just don't, I don't get people that just want to look for somebody to blame. Mm. Probably easier, isn't it? Yeah, but it's just lazy. Yeah. It's just lazy. And unlike many people in, in the world, successful people aren't lazy. Mm. And we have to be prepared, prepared to be vulnerable, don't we? To say, I messed up, that's li literally like saying, you know, I'm admitting that I'm not perfect. But all that is is having moral courage. Yeah. You know, sometimes to be successful, you just have to be brave. Mm. That's all you have to be is be brave. And now that's bravery and self-criticism. Bravery when you tackle and challenge others because they aren't being as successful as you know they can be. But tell people the truth if they're being lazy. Mm. You know, but most things that go really wrong are avoidable. Most things, and this is, and they're little things that become big. And like I said at the beginning of this, mm. I hate little things going wrong because they're <laughs> avoidable. You know, if you watch rugby players, the unforced errors are what lose you games. Mm. Where you knock on or you commit penalties that are avoidable. Ireland could have beaten Wales if Henshaw didn't go offside yeah. and obstruct. A little thing that he knew better than to do. But the whole thing then, the bigger picture then, from a little thing, the bigger picture is you lose the game. Mm. And it's the same in business, it's the same in life. So take care of the little things the big things are gonna happen anyway. Mm. But if you take care of the little things, there's a lot less big things gonna go wrong. Yeah. So you can do something about the little things. It's just like, you know, you got caught drink driving. You didn't have to have the drink. Mm. And if, you, if a drink was that important, then surely, if you can afford to drink that much, you can afford a taxi. Why do it? Mm. You know, I just don't do it. I, I, I don't have a drink, I don't even have a shandy when I drive, mm. ever, you know, because, in reality, it's a little thing that can become very, very big, very, very quickly. Yeah. And ultimately, the big thing out of that is, could you live with yourself if you killed somebody? Yeah. Or injured a child? How do you live with yourself? So what I'm saying is, from the big things to the little things, the little thing is having the first drink, but actually look at the scale it can mm. escalate to. You know what, this is a really good point. It's something I've probably not explored publicly or on the podcast, but you know, the analogy is the gateway drug. It's like most people don't do really bad things, mistakes, morally bad, ethically bad, bang, in one fell swoop. It's like one little thing that leads to another thing, to another thing, one small decision. You know, you just let yourself off the hook, you lie to yourself a little bit, and then, and then all of, you know, it's like if people maybe swizz a bit of money here and there, it's probably only a little bit, and then it gets more and more and more, and then, and then you've created this big lie, haven't you, that you can't come back from, and yeah, interesting you saying that. So that's why I don't like little things mm. going wrong. You know, the little things is, is, what do they say? Take care of the pennies and the pounds and look after themselves. Yeah. It's the same analogy. If you're wise with a penny, you don't have to worry about the pound because you're still going to have the pound because you've been wise with a penny. Yeah. 
take care of the little things in life. If you pay attention to the detail, you know, it's like reading a contract. Make sure you read mm. the detail of the contract. Mm. Don't just scan it. Yeah. Read it and understand it or employ somebody to read it and yeah. understand it for you. Mm. But, you know, if you don't do that, then you, you, you're likely going to get caught yeah. and somebody will cheat you. Mm. And everybody in business has had somebody do it to them. Mm. And it's one of the, it's rule 101, you know, once bitten, twice shy. Yeah. Well, as a speaker as well, you'll know what is how the importance of a contract as a speaker. Mm. So I want to respect your time, so I won't keep you for too much long, Simon. I want to say I'm really enjoying this. Thank you. Pleasure. And I hope it's been a pleasurable experience, your first podcast. <laughs> uh, so your speaking business. Now, mm. I love the speaking business, you know, because I think that anyone can be good at anything. And then if you become good at speaking about it, you've got a second profession immediately there. I mean, you probably, you know, when you were, you know, in your previous life in the forces, you probably never thought, I'm going to be a public speaker. Never in um, my life. And nor did I. I didn't think I'd be a public speaker about property. And then after property business and this podcast, I've got a couple, I've got, I broke three public speaking world records. It was Tony Blair and more than a quarter of a million pound for a speech at the National Achievers Congress. You know, there's like a lot of the ex-sportsmen make huge amounts of money as mm. speaking. And they entertain people, educate people, inspire people. So... Just talk a bit about the speaking business. Do you enjoy it? Why do you do it? Is it a good business to be in? Is it good money? Yeah, all of that. Yeah. yeah I mean, I do it because I can. Yeah. I do it because I enjoy it. I don't like the driving. I don't mm. like the traveling because yeah. there are hours of your life you can't get back. But yeah. that's why I don't like flying. Maybe you should listen to podcasts in the car then. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> I mean, I, I, do, I don't like flying because there are hours of my life I can't yeah. get back. Because mm. even though you can do little bits of work, realistically, you can't do much. Mm. I make sure I have a driver if I go anywhere, you know, of, of any distance because of that reason. Mm. You know, you need to have... I mean, but I spend my time on the phone, mm. you know. Um, people will say, oh, no, I mean, you shouldn't be driving and using the phone, but if you've got hands-free, it's no different to yeah. having people in the car and talking to them. Yeah. You know, it's just you're not holding the thing mm. and you're not concentrating on the phone, you're concentrating on the road and talking about business, yeah. you know. And, and that's what I do. My car is my office now. Yeah. So how many sort of public speaking engagements would you do a week? It varies. Mm. I mean, this week, Average. this week four. Yeah. Next week, four. Yeah. Sometimes I get. I mean, it, it it's seasonal as well yeah, and course. cyclical as well mm. because you sometimes you end up with maybe one, mm. but sometimes you can end up with seven or eight. Yeah. But so I, so you I might do, be averaging three or four a week. Yeah. I mean, I've got a documentary coming out now on the eighteenth of uh, March. Yeah. Uh, You've done documentaries before, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. but th this time I'm presenting it. Ah. Rather than being the subject of it, I'm right. presenting which Can I... Can you give it a plug? What's it called? It's the Imperial War Museum, 100 years. Right. So it's on BBC Two on the 18th, I think it's... 18th of? March. Right, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's... How did you enjoy being at the other side? I loved it. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. I, I, yeah, it was just something very, very nice to do. Mm. And I worked with a lovely girl called Charlie Sever, who um, I really like. Mm. You know, she's so good to work with. And she's so much fun as well. Mm. But she gave me a lot of trust. Unfortunately, it, it seems to have come off. I saw the preview of it and I was really impressed with mm. myself. Oh, good. You know, I yeah. think I didn't do a bad job. Yeah. Perhaps not the best presenter in the world, but I'm certainly not the worst. I've well, we seen much have, worse. Yeah, well, we all have to start somewhere as well, don't we, say? Well, this is it, you know. Um, but learning your lines and, yeah. you know, learning them quickly. Yeah. Because you don't have a chance to... Of course. Of, 
you don't get a great deal of time to learn them, so you've got to do it because you've only got so many days to film. Yeah. And you've got to get on with it. Yeah. And I enjoyed that, the pressure of it and mm. being a part of a team and, you know, it can't replace the way you worked in a team in the military. Nothing can because that was so much fun. But I'm too old for all that, getting yeah. cold and wet now. <laughs> yeah. And I was getting too hot. I, I like to do things, um, like I like to do things in TV. Yeah. I've a great fun. I, I I've had a great life. I've had mm. so much fun. Yeah. Have you got any top tips then for people who maybe are aspiring speakers or might have a bit of TV work? Because even if you're not on BBC, you might be on YouTube or you might have your own little thing like your own podcast or your own blog. Relax, relax and enjoy it. Yeah. You know, if you're a speaker, unless you're doing topic-specific speaking, like in your case, be about housing and property and everything else, there's a lot of experts in that field. So what you say, you have to be bang on mm. with it. You're, you're nailed to it. But when you're talking about other things which are very personal and specific to you, then you can say, you don't have to worry so much about what you're saying. Yeah. Because even if you get it wrong, nobody in the audience knows. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, there's lots of... If you of get it wrong truth. about your own life, then you're struggling, aren't you? But I remember I, I was going on stage and Michael Benteen and Harry Seacombe had just gone on. And for the younger people, they won't know they are, but they were from a group of guys called The Goons. And um, they were radio show stars and TV stars and very intelligent men. And uh, Harry Seacombe being a lovely Welshman. He saw the horror on my face because they had the whole of the Bristol Theatre up on their feet, cheering and everything. Oh, and you were on next. I was on next. <laughs> and I'm standing in the wings and the colour has drained out of me. <laughs> I am like, I am, I'm like a negative standing there. You know, I mean, I was yeah. grey. And Harry Seacombe came off and he had this lovely way, ha, ha, ho, he, he, like this. He used to, I mean, I'm not going to try and do it like him, but anyway. And he came off and he went, always remember this, Simon. He said, don't worry, he said, always remember this. He said, there are three billion Chinese who don't give a shit whether you get it right or wrong, he said. <laughs> and he, he wandered off. <laughs> I thought, thanks for that, H. Yeah. You know, but in, in reality, he was right. Yeah. He was absolutely right. If you get intimidated by the audience or the size of it, um, pan back. Just pan back in your mind. Then all of a sudden you realise that's just a small room mm. and it's one building in a whole town. Yeah. That town is in a country. That country is part of the world. Mm -hmm. You pan back, it actually shows you how small what you're doing actually is. Yeah. It can have a great impact on those people you're talking to, but actually, in the grand scheme of things, no, it's not mm. overly that important, the size of what you're doing. Yeah. It's always important to be the best you can be. It's always important to give people what they desire. You know, I would have been really disappointed if somebody didn't enjoy what I did this afternoon. Mm when I was speaking to your guys. But I, I'm really disappointed if people don't enjoy it anyway. Mm. Whatever the size of the audience, whether there's 10 or 10,000. You've done speeches that size of you sometimes. Yeah, wow, yeah. yeah. yeah I, mean, it, I love it though. Mm. I really enjoy the speaking. I just don't, I don't like the traveling to yeah. and from. But when you do the speaking, you know, there's nothing, there is nothing more rewarding. I mean, like footballers say, there's nothing greater than scoring a goal. The, for a speaker, there's nothing greater than having a stand innovation. Yeah. It, and, and you can't buy that. Mm. You can't buy the the respect of the audience. Yeah. So when you get that and it goes your way, you know, what a, happy days. And what a great business to be in to have that and get paid for it. You know, that's like <laughs> well, yeah. You know, I mean, everything everything comes down to money mm. in the reality of it. Anybody who says 
Oh, it's not about the money. <laughs> Trust me, yeah. it's about the money. Yeah, it's yeah you wouldn't have money. driven all the way to Peterborough for no money, would you? No, <laughs> not unless it was somebody over here that wanted my kidney. Yeah, yeah. You know, but no, I mean, and that's okay, isn't it? Why? Why do people have such a hang-up about it? That's okay. We're all allowed to earn a living. Well, that's it. You know, comedians don't. They they, they, they don't love the laughter. Laugh yeah, they love the laughter, but actually. What they really love is what's going in their bank account yeah. after they've made everybody laugh. Yeah. But they're using their skill and their time and their effort and their intelligence to make you laugh. Mm. And they know how to do it. Look at Peter Kay, one of the most successful men in this country, vastly rich, but good luck to him. Mm. Crikey Moses, he worked as an usherette in a cinema. Yeah. And now he's stinking rich. Mm. Good luck to him. Yeah. I, and he's made me laugh, he's entertained me, and I've met the guy. Mm. And he was lovely. Yeah. Um, you know, I speak as I find, he was lovely to me, very, very nice guy to me. And I, I met lots of good comedians, I met lots of successful people. Mm. You know, good luck to them. Yeah. I mean, I went to the boat show, there were people there that I knew. I didn't know how wealthy they were. Mm. And they just bought these great big Sunseeker yachts, <laughs> like millions of pounds. They just yeah. went, I've just bought that one. Really? Good luck <laughs> to you. Yeah. You know, enjoy every moment of float. Because mm. every wave just wipes away several pounds off the valley yeah. with that boat. Yeah. You know, they say there's, there's, you smile twice when you buy a yacht. First time when you get it, the next time when you get rid of it. Yeah. You know, but good luck to them. Yeah. I, I, haven't, I don't have any jealousy about people doing mm. things. I have no worries about people earning money. If you make a good living, good luck to yeah, you. I agree. You know, I think I love being around successful people mm. because so, they're so relaxed about life. Yeah. You know, they've made it. They're not fighting to get there. And some people who are fighting to get there can be quite unpleasant at times. Mm. And um, I just like, but I like being around people that are successful in, in a much smaller way. Mm. You know, but the most important thing for me is being around happy people. Mm. You know, the greatest thing we can turn out from our schools is not necessarily professors and scientists. Happy, confident youngsters mm. every single time. Yeah. If you're happy and you're confident, you can be successful. Mm. You will create your own success. But be happy and be confident. Yes, you need to learn. Exams are important. Your qualifications are important. But ultimately, you know, I can't, as a business, I can't make people more confident in my security business. If they're not confident, I haven't got time to build that in them. It mm. could take five months, it could take 12 years. You know, I can teach you how to do a job. If you come in and confident, we can educate you in the way you need to do the job. That's easy enough, because you're confident. Mm. And if you're happy with the fact that you've got a job and you enjoy working, then great, we've got the ingredients we can work with. Mm. But you know, the, 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 I, I don't want somebody with 20 degrees yeah. and no confidence. Mm because you don't know how long it's going to take to build that. I'm fascinated and really admire the fact that the person who was the most, probably the single most responsible for your injuries is someone you made peace with. Can you tell us about that? How that happened? Well, Carlos, um, Carlos Cachon. Um, yeah, I mean, we met him in Argentina and we met him because I got, I was asked if I would go back to the Falklands. And after 10 years of being injured and the Falklands sort of being a horror nightmare for me, and I went, yeah, I'll go back. And they had two other soldiers from the Falklands, one paratrooper, one Scots Guard. And Sir John Meredith was uh, the paratrooper from North Wales. And the other was Gary Teitler from Aberdeen. He was a Scots Guardsman. 
two excellent men, two really funny guys, really nice guys as well. Enjoyed their company massively. And so we were all going back to the Falklands and we went via Argentina. And because we were making the documentary, it's the only way the Ministry of Interior from Argentina would let us meet Carlos. So anyway, that was all sorted, arranged, and then we went and we did it. And, and for uh, those who don't know who Carlos is, can you just explain? The pilot who blew us up. Yeah. He dropped the 500-pound bomb on the Sagalhad and killed 48 men, most of them my friends, mm. and uh, injured 97 others. A lot of them were my friends as well. Mm. So, um, and how did you feel when you met him? It was, it was strange. It was very strange. We went through a huge amount of emotions. I did. But he, he kissed me on both cheeks, which is... A real strange thing to do. Mm. But, yeah, look, he's a Latin guy, but really nice fella. Mm. You know, didn't sit well with a lot of people. But what, I didn't, that, you, that you'd connected with him? Yeah, but I didn't do it for them. Mm. And I never made any apologies or I never said it was okay. I never said you're forgiven. And I certainly would never say it on behalf of anybody else. But the difference was that some of those guys took great offence. But they have to understand that sometimes you have to do very selfish things for you to be able to move forward. Mm. And sometimes you make massive decisions in your life and it can affect others, but I didn't do anything for them. I didn't do it, it wasn't about them, it was about me. It was about me curing my nightmares, getting me back together again because of PTSD and because of mental health things that were going wrong in my life. And I needed to do that. And I, I make no apology whatsoever for doing it. Mm. I'm sorry if it upset people. Because that also wasn't your intention. It really wasn't. I was doing something for me. And the only way I could get to meet him was because of the TV crew. Yeah. And Gary and, and uh, John Meredith, they met their contemporaries who they were fighting against on the hills that they fought. So they met people. Mm. But nobody seemed to take much notice of that meeting. Right. They took greater notice of me. Mm. I, I went back with a Marine one time, um, well, former Marine SBS soldier, a guy called old, um, Ian Taylor. And, no, sorry, Nick Taylor. And Nick, he met the guy who he was fighting against on the Two Sisters Mountain, the Twin Sisters, Two Sisters, whatever it's called. And Nick had raided his backpack when he found it, ripped it open, stole what was in there. They had one frame left on a camera, so all his mates got together, they took the photograph, and then Nick took the film and developed it. Well, there was all these pictures of this Argentinian fella, and uh, eventually they met up. Wow. You know, and, and nobody said anything about that. Yeah. You know, but they seemed to take a greater offence at me meeting the pilot who'd done so much damage. Mm. And I don't understand why. Yeah. Because it was the right thing to do. Mm. That's and how, all. how did it feel once you'd done that? Did it, did it cure you? Um, not instantaneously, no. nothing can, you know. It, it's only something that happens over time, you know, and, and you learn to let go of your demons. Mm. You learn to let go of the monster that holds you back. Yeah. You know, but these are things you've got to do in life. Mm. And whatever's happened to you in life, you know, they, they found that with a lot of mental health things that go wrong and, and PTSD and things like that, you actually, if you unravel it, you find out the incident that you were involved in is not the reason. You go back in people's history and you find the real reason. Right. And it is with a lot of mental health things. Yeah. I mean, I'm no psychiatrist, I'm no psychologist, I'm definitely only a barroom psychologist, okay? <laughs> yeah. But you, you find out later on in life that there's other issues yeah. 
that need to be dealt with before you can deal with that one. Of course. And they all base themselves in losing control. Mm. You know, and what people don't realise in life is that we, all, we are all control freaks. Mm. We are all control freaks. None of us like to be out of control of anything. You know, some people take it to a greater degree than others. But the reality is, if you have financial worries, you've lost control. Mm. If you've got a child that's going off the rails, you've lost control. If you've got people who are terminally ill, you've lost control. And these are all huge things in your life because we, we like to keep control of these things. You know, I, I'm a dad and a granddad, you know. Um, at the moment, I can control my five-year-old grandson. In another five years, ten years' time, I'm not going to be able to tell him <laughs> what to eat or drink or when to go to bed. and then He's going to be doing it all himself. Mm. You know, so, and I'm going to hate it. Mm. Because, I mean, I have a little bit of control over him now because I care about him and love him and yeah. I want to see him safe. Mm. But once he starts playing rugby or football or whatever it is, or he starts going out with his friends to the park, or he starts at 18 going, or probably 15 going <laughs> drinking, you know, you have no control of what's going to happen to those yeah. people. So you worry about them now, but you worry differently later on. Mm. And that's what parenting is about. Yeah. You know, um, so that's just life. Mm. Did, did you, was there a point or a process where you forgave Carlos? No. No. There's nothing to forgive. No. If I forgive him, he becomes personal. Yeah. And it wasn't personal. Yeah. He didn't know, he didn't have a clue who Simon Weston was. No. He didn't care, yeah. you know. But everybody who died on that ship was just as nice. Yeah. All the guys that were on there were just as pleasant. They were friends of mine, great people, some of them. You know, so... No, I mean, there was nothing to forgive. Was there I anything didn't to let go? Him. Pardon? Was there anything to let go? Yeah, my nightmares. Mm. That's it. You know, um, Carlos helped me deal with a lot of emotional problems mm. that I had because of the bombing. Mm. And he helped that. But that's it. Mm. You know, but I needed his intervention. It couldn't have been done by any psychiatrist, psychologist. Yeah. Sometimes you need to have that face-to-face and you need to understand each other. Mm. You know, he still thinks it's theirs, I still think it's ours. Mm. In fact, I know it's ours, and the reason I know that is because history says it's ours. Mm. And the fact that we give them a good kick in and told them to get off the rock because it belonged to the people who live there. Mm. And no matter what anybody else in the world says, history proves that the only people ever to have settled those islands are the British. Mm. And 75% of them came from Scotland. Right. Mm. Okay, so finally then, if anyone is having any challenge, whether it's setting up their business, growing their business, personal challenges, trying to balance being a parent and run their business and deal with general stuff that life throws at them, what can you say that might be able to give them a little bit of help and hope? If you've got a problem, speak to somebody. Because there's some incredibly wise sages out there and you'll be surprised just how many people want to help. Don't struggle on alone. That's just crazy. There are so many incredibly talented, gifted, well-meaning people out there. Whatever your business, whatever your business, even if it's a personal issue. You know, there's an old adage, a problem shared is a problem halved. Mm. And you'd be surprised just how much weight it takes off your shoulders by talking to somebody about it. But the answers are out there, even if the answers you don't want to hear, but they're out there. Mm. 
So just get the right advice, you know, go and speak to the right people and don't be frightened. Don't be frightened of whatever it is that you've got to deal with. It's the, the more you run away, it's still got to be dealt with yeah. when you come back to face it. So deal with it. And it's just like a kid that hasn't done their homework. When you actually get it done, God, it's such a weight off your shoulders. Mm. And business is no different. Business is no different. You make decisions based on knowledge. Knowledge is power. So the more knowledge you have, the more power you have to make things right, to make things work. And the greatest successes on this planet have all failed. Yeah. Everybody fails at something, you know, and there's only one failure anyway in life and that's to make no attempt. Mm. You know, Richard Branson is the first person to put his hand up and say, yeah, there's lots of things that he's done that haven't worked. But it doesn't mean to say that he's a failure. Mm. It just means to say that some things didn't go the way he wanted them to go, but he learns a lot from it each time. You're a success, but there have been things that haven't worked straight away or things that you think, well, I would, wished I hadn't done that, but I've learned from it. I'll put that into practice now. I, I've got this going right, so I'll do this, that, the other. We're all in exactly the same position. Mm. There are things that don't work. Great, you learn from it, don't do it again. It's as simple as that. You, you put your hand in a fire, you're going to find out it burns. So don't do it again. Mm. You know, you only do it once. And that's the sense of life. Mm. That's the good common sense. But always, always talk to somebody. Mm. Don't try battling it out. It doesn't make you weaker. Mm. It actually will make you stronger because you know you've got somebody else to talk to. Mm. No matter whatever else. And, and learn whatever it is you're going into. Learn about it. Don't just go blundering into it and think, well, that's going to work because I, I, I want it to. Desire never makes things work. Mm. You know, It can play a big part in it. But the more you understand about what it is you're going into, the more success you will have with it. Yeah. So knowledge is power. And I don't know who said that either. It was somebody, <laughs> somebody from America who said it. Yeah. But it is. And I heard it on the Cosby show. Well, then it's definitely a fact. <laughs> oh, it's got to be a fact, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was on an American comedy show. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, the reality is that, yeah, I mean, knowledge is, is without doubt hugely important in mm. whatever you do. It helps you make best decisions. Mm. Simon, it's been a real pleasure. No, enjoy it. And now you are no longer a podcast virgin. <laughs> yeah. And um, thank you very much for coming all this way to do this. Not a problem. Thank you. Cheers, Rob. Thank you. And remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. <laughs>